Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. We're continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark, starting in verse 27. We talk a lot about following Jesus here at Redeeming Hope. It's in the core of our vision statement. And I just have to say, Mark 8, this whole chapter holds a very special place in my heart and life. Um, Mark 8 was my dad's life first. Those of you who don't know, my father died back in 2012 of Lou Gehrig's disease when he was 55. I took care of him as he was dying. And my dad was this amazing man. He loved Jesus. Um, my dad changed the trajectory of our family narrative. Uh, we had three generations of alcoholism, abuse, neglect, and divorce that, that my father changed. How did my dad change that? Because in 1979, in a Volkswagen Beetle eating his lunch, my dad was listening to the Jerry Falwell on the radio and gave his life to Christ. And it was after that point, everything about my dad's life began to change. Jay Young, at that moment, he tied his legacy to Jesus and every prayer he prayed, everything he, he left behind, everything he embraced moving forward um, for the next 40, 50 years of his life, 40 years of his life was done in light of, of following Jesus. And, and my dad's life first is what we're talking about today. When he had Lou Gehrig's disease, he couldn't move his hands or legs. And so when you come visit my father, as many people did, actually 400 people were at my dad's funeral and I preached Mark 8. And it was like, that's the legacy that my dad left. And as my dad was dying, he loved coffee. And so when you'd come visit, you'd make a strong cup of coffee and you'd have to feed it to him through a straw. So I'd have these grown men, hardened men. I had one guy, a Vietnam vet, who was one of my dad's closest friends. He built the Baltimore Ravens Stadium. He was a welder. I mean, this guy was a hard dude. But this guy showed up and was feeding my dad coffee through a straw. Like, that's the impact that my father had on people's lives. And he would do, he would want two things. Feed me some coffee. He didn't even care about food towards the end. Just give me some dark coffee, man. And then my dad said, read me Mark 8. Mark 8, Mark 8. You just hear him saying that, even when he was struggling to talk towards the end of his life. Um, so I'm privileged to let you in on the message of my father's life today. And, and hopefully by looking at Jesus and by looking at this passage, you might know a little bit about who my dad is. So with that, we talk a lot about following Jesus. How do we follow Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciple? Well, I want us to get a definition of the word disciple and discipleship. You see, the word disciple is really neutral. It means one who follows. We should have that up on here in the screen here in a sec. Disciple is one who follows, and discipleship is helping someone follow someone or something, right? So disciple is one who follows, and discipleship is helping someone follow someone or something. And discipleship and disciple is morally neutral. You can be a disciple of many different things in this world. And just a couple things. You can be a disciple of success. You can say success is the thing that's pulling me forward. Success is the thing that I'm running after in my life. And you can center your life and the decisions of your life around success. Another one, which I think is more popular in the past couple of years, is a disciple of discipline, all right? Jocko Willink, 
what is it, Andrew Huberman, um, uh, Jordan, there's all these people that you can listen to that talk about discipline. The guys that take a picture, I think it's Jocko, he puts on his Twitter, he takes a picture of his watch and he says, I'm waking my alarm up in the morning. Like that's the mentality, right? I'm going to wake my alarm up in the morning. I'm going to go, David Goggins, I'm going hard. I'm running uh, 100,000 miles barefoot in the snow, all right? And you should do that too because it's good for you. Do hard things. And, and actually there's nothing wrong with that, but when that is the pull of your life, that's what you center your life on, that impacts the decisions that you make, that influences everything about your life. Some people are discipled by critique and by criticism, especially by things that might have hurt them. And and we've actually seen this in the kind of ex-evangelical church culture. We see people that have been genuinely hurt by the church, but then nourish themselves on cynicism, nourishes themselves on critique, and that becomes the thing that pulls them, that guides them. It's the thing that changes everything about how they view the world, right? And we even see this as it relates to family, too, and family is a good and wonderful and helpful thing, but we can be discipled by our family, not discipled by Jesus. And all of these things are good. Success is good, right? Like, like we want to be good at the things that we do. We want to carefully Um, we carefully think about what we do and how we do it. We want the people at Redeeming Hope to be the best employees in your job. Like, we want you to do that, right? Um, Discipline, of course discipline is good. Critical thinking, we want you to critique. I literally just said a few minutes ago, critique us and tell us. We want to hear about your thoughts, right? And actually, family is beautiful and wonderful and it's a gift. And literally, it's the investing in your spouse and in your children is the most important thing that you can do outside of following Jesus right? That is where your legacy lies. Like we encourage that. But if you follow these things with your life, if they take the, the, the strings of your heart and pull you into a way of living, that is actually what discipleship is. And what we want is Jesus-centric discipleship. So that's what I'm going to, when I say discipleship for the rest of our time today, or following Jesus, it is Jesus-centric discipleship, where we are pulled along by the life and the teachings of Jesus from the scriptures. That's what we're talking about. Unapologetically, we follow the life and the teachings of Jesus. And a disciple is one who emulates, who follows, who looks like, who acts like, who reflects Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we reject the discipleship of the world around us? And I think a lot of times many of us are discipled by our algorithms more than we're discipled by the scriptures, aren't we? Right? right? Like we let those things pull us and, 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 and influence us in ways that maybe aren't the most helpful. Maybe this is what we need to be discipled by. This is the algorithm that needs to control our life and, and how we think and perceive the world. So how do we do this? Where do we begin to look like him? So I think Mark 8 asks us three questions. Who are we following? Where are we going? And what are we doing? Who are we following? Where are we going? And what are we doing? So the first thing, who are we following? And that's where we come to our text today, Mark 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are worthy of following today. I pray that we would see your beauty. We would see the joy of what it looks like to 
give our lives recklessly to your life, to give our lives recklessly to your direction and how that can truly benefit, benefit us for now and benefit us for eternity. Let your words be present here in this sermon today in your name. Amen. So um, when a rabbi would invite his students to follow him, um, he would literally walk from town to town and teach. And it was customary in that culture for as the rabbi was walking, his disciples would walk behind him. Okay, so that was kind of the idea. The rabbi was leading this band of disciples behind him, and they were literally following him, like physically following him. But then also as he was walking, he would turn and teach them. He would ask these questions. So this is a very common thing in the scriptures and a very common thing with rabbis in the first century. And so he's going up, and this, was, this is going to come into play here in a few minutes. He's going up to the city of Caesarea Philippi, which is set on a hill. And then from there, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. So Jesus has kind of at the end of his earthly ministry here, he is directing himself towards Caesarea Philippi and through there to Jerusalem to where he knows he will die. And so he turns, as rabbis often do, and asks them a teaching question. He says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples tell him these three things. You're either John the Baptist, who is a, a modern prophet and healer and forerunner of Jesus. You're either this guy, or you're Elijah, who's the most, one of the most famous prophets in all of Israel's history. You're one of the, the prophets of old. You've got this ancient wisdom, right? So we see that what the disciples are telling Jesus is that clearly the crowd see Jesus as an important and enigmatic figure in the world around them. Of course they see that, right? But they don't actually have real insight into his true identity. And so Jesus then, okay, we see this, and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, well, well who do you say that I am? Obviously, the crowd's answer is not enough. And so Peter answers emphatically, you are the Christ. Now, for those of you who've been going to church for a while, maybe you've heard this before, and if so, forgive me, but I think it's helpful for us to know that Christ is not just Jesus's last name, okay? It's not like Joshua Young, Jesus Christ. Like, like it's not his last name. It's actually a title, and so it's better to put an article there, Jesus the Christ. And, and what we see is that the word Christ means deliverer, anointed one, or messiah. And in the first century, there was an expectation that there would be a savior who would come, who would free Israel and set the world right. Like every Jewish person growing up would have had this idea of the Christ kind of looming in the background. And as they saw the Romans oppressing them, as they saw the Romans kind of clamping down on their freedoms, they were praying and waiting for the Christ. So for Peter to say this, he's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He's the coming Messiah, the Savior who's going to come and set the world right again. He's actually affirming the truth about Jesus' identity. And, and this is good. That's true. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Savior. He's the anointed one. And so Jesus is drawing a comparison here. He's saying, I'm not simply a prophet. I am God incarnate. And Colossians actually helps us bring even additional clarity to this explicit, with more explicit language um, to explain this. This is Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. It says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is Jesus the Christ. This is who we are invited to follow. He is the image of God. He created the world with the Father and the Spirit, the three of them working together to create the world. He holds the world together. He holds the church together. He is the fullness of of God. So if you want to know how God feels about you, if you want to know what he thinks about you, you look to Jesus. If you're wondering, how would, how would God feel about me in this situation? Or how would God respond in this situation? You look at what Jesus has already done. He, in him, the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. So that answers our first question. Who are we following? We follow the God of the universe who became flesh and bone the one way back to God, the singular savior of the human race, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our savior. That's who we are invited to follow. And I think that Mark is setting us up to see this. He's answering some of these questions for us. Who are we following? We are following Jesus. The second question, where are we going? So they just said that Jesus is the long-awaited savior. Okay, great. Now let's go tell everyone, the Messiah is here, the Christ is here, the anointed one, the promised one is here. We got to tell everybody about Jesus. We got to get everybody on this train because he's going to save us and set the world right again. But then Jesus says these words that are so confusing to us. Definitely not how I would have done it. This is what he says in Mark 8.30. He says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Wait, the savior of the universe is here. The promised one for thousands of years is here. He just said it. It's like, yes, okay, Jesus is the Christ. It's like, don't, don't, don't tell anyone? What are you talking about, Jesus? And he began to teach that the Son of Man, who's another way that he refers to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, why did Jesus tell his disciples to be silent about this? Well, what we see here in the text is that Jesus had a better plan for when he was going to reveal himself as the Christ. You see, and specifically, he's talking to Peter. Okay, Peter's the one who made this proclamation about Jesus, you are the Christ. Now, Peter was a part of a Jewish faction who opposed the Romans, the Romans ruling over them. And, and this, this faction wanted to take up arms and fight against the Romans to fulfill the messianic prophecy of a savior. So they pretty much said, we're going to grab swords, we're, we're planning, they're plotting an overthrow of the Roman government. And, and what happens is, is that when Jesus comes on the scene, Peter's perspective is, okay, now it's here. Now we can grab the swords. Now we can fight against the Romans. Now we can be free from oppression. See, what they wanted to do is take Jesus's salvation and define it as a mechanism to overthrow the government, to politicize Jesus, to narrow his salvation to the physical and the political. But Jesus' public revelation of himself as Christ 
was so much more powerful than the disciples ever could have imagined. So I'm going to give you a little preview of where we're going at the end of, chapter, of Mark in chapter 14. So let's fast forward real quick. Jesus is betrayed. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is in chains. He's literally in chains. He, he's at a secret trial in the middle of the night. He's being falsely accused of blasphemy. They're hitting him. They're beating him. They're blindfolding him and say, well, prophesy about who beat you. Prophesy about who hit you. And it's on the eve of his death. And he knows this is where it's going. And this is what happens in Mark 14, starting in verse 60. It says, and the high priest stood up in the midst of them and asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus, for the first time in the entire book of Mark, this is when Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So in chains, blindfolded at a false secret, unjust trial in the middle of the night, standing in front of his accusers who are lying about him. The God of the universe not only is willingly submitting to these chains, but to the very next day, he will submit to the very Roman oppressors who are oppressing his people who will nail him to a cross. And it's there that Jesus says, I'm the Christ. Wait, what is going on here? This is powerful, my friends. This tells us about the nature of Jesus being Savior. This tells us about what this means. This is not the Savior that the Jews were looking for. This is a Savior in weakness, not strength. This is a Savior in submission, not in power. This is a Savior in persecution, not in authority. We would never have chosen to do it this way, ever. We never would have chosen to do it this way. But this is what marks our Savior and where he's going, pulling back to this road up to Caesarea Philippi. He tells them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. This is where the Savior is going, suffering and rejection and laying down his rights for you and me. That's the nature of his salvation. Not political, not physical, right now, one day, but the nature of it is actually through weakness, submission, and persecution, not strength, power, and authority. And he gives the timeline. He says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. Which, by the way, he is the Christ. He just said it, going back to Peter. You are the Christ. He says, tell no one. And also, no one's going to believe this. I'm going to be killed. But then he says, I will rise again. And it's almost like Jesus says this over and over and over again in the Gospels. And it's like the disciples like, have a blank slate. <laughs> Like, they don't remember that part. They remember the part where he's going to die and they get upset about it, but they actually don't remember the part where he rises from the dead. And it's like, he actually has to do it, and then they still don't believe him until he appears in the room. It's like, he says it right here, I will rise again. So where was Jesus going when he says, come follow me? He wasn't going to a position of power, but rather a position of weakness and submission and injustice, submitting himself to injustice for the betterment of you and me. He's not just going as our victor, He's not just going as our example, but he's going as our substitute. So this says something about where we're going when we follow Jesus. My friends, we can lay down our rights to the life that we want because Jesus has laid down his rights sacrificially for you and me, ultimately. We're invited into a lifestyle of sacrificing 
sacrificing our time, our money, our things for the betterment of others. Why? Because of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice for our salvation. And this, I think, is so helpful for me, especially. When suffering and difficulty and pain enter into our lives, it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Jesus followed the will of his Father perfectly, right? We believe. This is the core tenet of the Christian faith that Jesus was sinless, right? Jesus suffered immensely. He had pain, betrayal, difficulty. My friends, in the course of following Jesus, this is normal and natural for the Christian. And it's not a sign that God does not love you. Because what do we see God saying about his son in Jesus' baptism? When Jesus comes up, it says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. And what is said over Jesus is said over you if you choose to follow him. Your father loves you. You're his child and he's pleased with you. And so we know that's true, but we also know that in light of that statement over Jesus' life, he also suffers. He also has immense difficulty in this life. So our suffering and pain is not a sign that God does not love us. It's that we live in a broken world. And Jesus is with us in what? He completely understands our struggles. Jesus, guess what? Jesus had financial struggles. (laughs) Jesus had relational struggles. He was betrayed. He was misunderstood. He was falsely accused. So, who are we following? We're following Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the singular Savior of the human race. Where are we going? We follow Jesus who is consciously walking to his own suffering, death, and victorious resurrection. That's that's where we're going. We're following along the life of Jesus. So what are we doing? Peter who had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He can't believe this. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. He can't believe this. Why? Peter wants Jesus to save them from the Romans. You get this, right? Like the Romans are oppressing the people. Peter's passionate about the Jewish people. Please come and save us from these oppressors. He doesn't want a savior to die. So this is what Peter does. Mark 8, 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's rebuking Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So so Peter rebukes Jesus by taking him aside. What does this mean? Remember I told you we're walking up to Caesarea Philippi and the disciples would be behind him? What does Peter have to do? He has to walk faster than Jesus, grab him, and pull him to the side and rebuke him. You can't say this. Now, literally seconds before he says, you're the God of the universe, come to save us. Like seconds before, (laughs) like this is the same story. He says, you are God. You are the Savior. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. So why this disconnect here? I think Peter's scared. I think fear, logic doesn't drive Peter to make this decision because he literally just said, you're the Savior of the world. You're God incarnate. I think Peter's scared. You see, Peter wants the win. And suffering and rejection and death doesn't look like winning to Peter, does it? And in his anger, in his fear, because he wants to see God's kingdom come, I think Peter lost sight of the true win, which was salvation. (laughs) Salvation of the world. Not just the Jewish people, not just from the Romans. He had too narrow of a view of Jesus' ultimate salvation. And in his fear, he got ahead of Jesus. He pulled him aside 
They began to rebuke him. And I think it's easy to judge Peter right here. I think it's easy to say, what a knucklehead, right? But here's the deal. Isn't Peter's blindness our own? How often do I, the moment suffering, the moment difficulty, the moment pain enters my life, how often do I doubt God's goodness? How often do I doubt God's sovereignty? God, are you in control and do you love me? Right? That's the big questions when suffering enters in. And let me tell you, it doesn't take a lot of pain point to get me there. <laughs> it's quick. It's a quick shift saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? Do you love me? Are you powerful? Like, it happens to us so quickly. And we just see it kind of on display here with Peter. But my friends, I think Peter's blindness is our own. So a couple questions maybe to consider as we think through this question of, of what are we doing? Are we comfortable following a God who suffers? Can we be comfortable following a God who willingly submitted to the authority of his oppressors, to evil people, in order that we may be saved? Are we comfortable with identifying with God's suffering, seeing our own pain as a mechanism of his will and even his grace to you and to others? Are we seeking to use Jesus as a political or social or religious tool to bring our own idea of the kingdom? Or do we follow him as truly our God, our King, and our Lord, saying it's not about my kingdom, it's about yours. And if your kingdom looks different than mine, that's okay, I'm going to follow you anyway. So what are we doing? I think we're doing two things. We see the first one here. We're dying to our will and agenda. That's what happens when you come to Jesus. When you see him as Lord, you make him Lord and King over your life, you die to your will and agenda. We don't naturally want to follow Jesus into death. I want my will. That's why I want it, because it's my will, and it's what I think is best. That's naturally what we think. But that's exactly what he's calling us to do, saying, lay down your rights, lay down your will, follow me. I'm bringing a kingdom that's much better than you could ever even imagine. <laughs> and after Jesus rebukes Peter for saying this, then he calls the crowds together. And then look what he says in verses 34 to 36. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Come after me. This is the invitation of Jesus. This is the call of Jesus for you and me to be a disciple, a follower. That means we go where Jesus goes. We walk where Jesus walks, and we do what Jesus does. So we have to look. When Jesus says to them, follow me, where was Jesus going? There's a three-step process that Jesus, and we're going to leave this on the screen here. There's a three-step process to being a disciple of Jesus. I didn't make it three points. The Bible did, okay? So that's three points. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. The first thing he tells us right here, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be a disciple, if anyone would follow me first, let him deny himself. We all have an inclination towards self-protection and self-gratification. So the call of the Christian, the follower of Jesus, is to deny the immediate, to follow the eternal. The second thing he says is take up your cross. And I've preached this sermon before in different contexts, 
And the title of the sermon has changed quite a bit. Every time I do it, it's a different title. But one of the sermon titles was Take Up Your Electric Chair. <laughs> because that's actually what we're talking about here. We see the cross today, universally, the cross is a symbol of hope, right? We, even, we see this all the time. Even we look for crosses, we see crosses and different things. Culturally, it's not a symbol of what it meant 2,000 years ago. The closest thing that we can think of 2,000 years ago when you said cross before Jesus died and rose again was an electric chair, a symbol of torture and a symbol of immense torture and death. This was an electric chair. And what does Jesus say? Take up your electric chair, pick it up, hold it close to you, sling it on your back, and follow me, we're going to Jerusalem. That's what Jesus is saying. The call of a Christian is to pick up your instrument of death, to die to yourself and welcome that. That is bonkers, all right? That is crazy. And what they would see back then was the cross. Again, it's like the closest thing, it's not even that close, is pick up your electric chair and come follow me. That's what it would have been like. Third thing is follow Jesus. Follow me. My friends, where was Jesus going when he picked up his cross? Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place where he would ultimately be crucified, the place of his death. My friends, we are not called to pick up the cross and go to a field of flowers with roses and buttercups and unicorns dancing around. Like that's not where Jesus was going. Jesus was going to a hard place. He was going to a difficult place. We're called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus to Golgotha, to the death of ourselves, to the death of our selfishness, to building our own kingdoms, our self-gratification, our comfort, complacency, even to the death of our religiosity, to do more, work harder, and be better, to try to prove ourselves and justify ourselves. And then we see the very next phrase, what does having the whole world mean if you lose your truest self? The truest self that you and I have is meant to follow Jesus and being united with God again, following him, no matter where that takes us. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what you and I were designed for. Even think about it in the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve in the garden. What would he do every day? He'd show up in the cool of the day and it says he would walk with them. That's what you and I are designed to do. That's what we were created to do. That's innately at the core of who we are as human beings. We were designed to be unified with our Father, to walk with him. It doesn't matter where he's going. It matters that we're with him. And we also see from the scriptures that as we follow him, he leads us into our joy. He leads us into our ultimate good, which oftentimes doesn't look like what we think our good is, right? Jesus' death is the only way to true life. Jesus wants you to thrive. I just wanted to tell you right now, Jesus wants you to thrive. He wants your deepest needs to be satisfied. My friends, if you are married, he wants you to have marriages that are unified. If you're single, he wants you to have singleness be a source of contentment and not anguish. Redeeming hope for us, he wants us to have churches that are unified around the gospel and godly leadership. Every person here, Jesus wants you to follow him with your life into ultimate life. See, that's what he's inviting us into. Do you want that? I want that. I want a life that's thriving. I want a life that's filled with joy. I want a marriage that's unified, a singleness that's not a source of anguish, but contentment. I want a church that's unified around the gospel. I want to follow him into life. My friends, you and I have to go to Golgotha. You cannot get to the resurrection power of the empty tomb without the difficult way of the cross. 
You cannot get to the resurrection power of the empty tomb without the difficult way of the cross. So Jesus says, come and die. Why? So you might live. You give up your life to gain it. And he says, follow me into life. That's the title of our sermon today. Follow me into life. So where are we going? Living a self-denying, cross-embracing, Jesus-following life. When you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. That's the paradox of the gospel in the kingdom. When you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But when you lose your life in Christ, you'll ultimately find it. So what are we doing? Two things. We're dying to our will and agenda, like Peter was invited to. What are we doing? We're living a self-denying, cross-embracing, Jesus-following life. So how do you do that? How do you do that today? Well, two things. One, repentance and faith. It's just simple. It's the same thing we say every single week here at Redeeming Hope. If you look over the course of your life and you haven't yet put a stake in the ground for Jesus, you haven't said, yes, I'm choosing to follow him with my life. I choose him as my Lord and King and Savior. Why? How can we even do that? It's because of his work already in our lives, right? He allows us to make this choice. But if you put a stake in the ground, if you put a stake in the ground for Jesus, you said, yes, he's my Lord, my King, my Savior. My friends, I want you to believe the work of Christ for you. I want you to believe that he entered into death. He entered through the way of the cross as your substitute. And then embrace that for you to actually become Christian. That's what it means. Now, if you've done that, if you looked over the course of your life and said, yes, I've put that stake in the ground. Jesus is my Lord and King and my Savior. My friends, it's so easy to forget this. Like Peter, one minute we can be professing Jesus as Lord and Christ and King and Messiah. I'm coming to church on Sunday. I'm singing songs. I'm crying. It's great. You get in a car accident on the way home, right? Get a fender bender. You have a pain, you have a difficulty, you break your finger at Hope Youth, right? And all of a sudden it's like, God, do you love me? (laughs) It's so easy. It's so easy to forget. And that's why we have rhythms. That's why we have rhythms as a church. We have rhythms as a family. God is gracious to us and he wants us to experience that grace. So that's why here at Redeeming Hope, we do some pretty simple things. And you hear me say this a lot. There's just three things we expect of everyone here at Redeeming Hope. We want to invite you into as a way to follow Jesus consistently. And that's to abide with him consistently. We just say 15 minutes three times a week. If you can do it 15 minutes three times a week, it's like Pringles and you pop the can. Once you pop, the fun don't stop, okay? You can't just have one, all right? If you get 15 minutes, I guarantee you, I'll bet you a steak dinner and $10.50 that if you read the Bible for 15 minutes three times a week, you're gonna read it more than that the next month. It's just awesome. It's great. You're just spending time with Jesus. Remember, that's what you were created for. So when you're abiding with Jesus, you're feeling fulfilled because that's ultimately what we were created for in the first place. So we just want to invite everybody in your time with Jesus 15 minutes, three times a week. Join a group. A group allows you to be known, loved, cared for, held accountable to following the life and teachings of Jesus. We have tons of groups. You can go to ourhope.cc slash groups. You can come talk to me. You can look at the bulletin. There's QR codes galore about, I don't even know where the QR codes are, but they're everywhere, all right? You can just find a group on our website or come talk to me. But, but throughout the week, you're known and loved and cared for in community, all right? And that helps you follow Jesus because we're like Peter, we forget. We leave singing here today and you break your finger and you're like, well, God, do you even love me anymore, right? So abide with Jesus consistently, 15 minutes, three times a week. Be in a group, meet weekly, jump in.
And then come to the gatherings. Like we need this time. This isn't to play on your emotions. We use all of our gifts. We use all of our life. We use our emotions. We use our logic. We use our minds. We use our hearts. We use our relationships. We use our money. We use our gifts and talents. All these things to offer back to God in worship to him, right? And this is rhythms to remind us of the truth about Jesus is, our, is the Christ. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. <clears throat> so I think the final question that I have for us today why? Why do we do any of this? I actually think this is a great question to ask every now and then. Like I just presented to you this whole logic coming from Mark 8, right? You saw me walk through the text. This is what it says, you know, who are we following? Where are we going? What are we doing? Um, these are all the benefits that you have. Why? Why should we even do this? Why not just live our lives and die? Well, uh, to, to kind of share a final story, there's this guy named Gehardus Voss. He was a I read weird things, okay? You just know I weird, read weird things, all right? I'm working through some, like, dense stuff. But what, this, it's, not, it's not that bad, but it, he's a Dutch theologian, and he, he did a series of lectures for Princeton uh, Seminary in, in the early turn of the 19th century. And I, I was reading them years ago, and I've really been captivated by Gerhardus Voss and specifically a really sweet story that he highlighted from the scriptures. So that's kind of where I want to end today. And it's Mary... In the, in the garden after Jesus resurrects from the dead. You see, Mary Magdalene, uh, with a bunch of women, went to the tomb to take care of Jesus' body three days after he died. And they see the tomb rolled away. John and Peter run to the tomb. They look in. Jesus isn't there. They run out. Guess who's there alone in the garden? Mary. And there's this empty tomb, Right? And Jesus isn't there. And the, the, the burial clothes are in the tomb. And she leans into the tomb and sees two angels. Like two bright, gleaming angels. Filling up the empty tomb of Jesus, who literally told her he was going to raise from the dead. Like, all the evidence is pointing to the thing that you wanted to happen happened, right? Like everything is here to tell us that, that this is happening. There's these glory of these. Can you imagine being in a room with two angels? Like they're clearly angels and they're resplendent beings. They're bright beings. And, and Mary's response is fascinating. <laughs> she doesn't even notice them. She doesn't even pay a lick of attention to him. They said, why are you crying? She treats him like they're just normal people in the tomb, hanging out, chilling. Like, think about this for a second. She said, that she's like, they're like, why are you crying? She completely disregarded them. What does she say? She says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. All she cared about was Jesus. She didn't care about these angels. She didn't care about the stone rolled away. She didn't care about the grave clothes. Nothing that these angels said could have pierced her sorrow in that moment. Because here she is, surrounded by the very things that should have been the source, that should have nourished her most profound joy. And instead, they led her into the deepest sorrow. Why? Because Jesus wasn't there. Where's Jesus? Where's my Lord? They've taken him. So she turns around. She just like ignores the angels. Skip you guys. I'm trying to find my Lord. She's crying. She's heartbroken. She still thinks Jesus is dead. 
And she turns around and she sees who she thinks is a gardener. And it was Jesus. But for whatever reason, in his glorified, exalted state, people don't immediately recognize him. So she turns around and she sees and she says, do you know where they've taken him? Now I want you to turn. So that's Mary, just completely ignoring these angels. She's looking for Jesus. Now I want you to think about Jesus for a second. No one's yet seen Jesus. He resurrected. Can you imagine what that must have been like? The two guards guarding the tomb passed out. Jesus rolling the tomb away. <laughs> it's sitting there open. He walks out. He's in victory. He's just accomplished the central act of salvation in all of human history. A morning has dawned on a new era that you and I get to live in now. It's the second creation experience that also happens in a garden. The first creation experience, Adam and Eve fell, didn't pass the test, broke it all. Jesus, what does he do? He passes the test in the garden of Gethsemane. He dies for us and he walks free in a garden. Brand new powers. All of human history has changed. It is the turn of the ages. And Jesus is the centerpiece of this new universe. He's the fulcrum in which everything rests and pivots on. He's entered into endless life with new powers such as no human being has ever experienced before. He's literally superhuman. <laughs> he always has been, but he's, he's walking in new powers. He's walking in new joy, walking in new salvation. He has done the work for all of human history to save you and me. And he's enjoying these new powers. Now, would it, wouldn't it have been natural for him to like go away somewhere? Like go pray to his father like he did so often to enjoy this time to enjoy all the victory that he won with his sacrificial death. He's walking, he's walking tall. He's victory. He's king. He's Lord over the universe and he proved it. Of course it would have been natural. But among all the voices crying, all the angels announcing his victory, can you imagine the, the celebration in heaven when Jesus walks out of the tomb? Hosts of angels, millions of angels screaming, holy, 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 he's victorious, he's won. Out of all the voices in heaven announcing his victory and triumph and glory, no other voice appealed to Jesus like the voice of Mary weeping in the garden. The first appearance of the risen Jesus in all of his victory, it was given to Mary for no other reason than she needed him first and she needed him the most. And what better way to convince you and me of the heart of Jesus for us in heaven? today, right now. His first hours of victory, he retained that same tenderness, the same individual love and care for us that he showed as he walked this earth. Nothing about his victory changed that. Tenderness, love, care. Mary's voice of need in the garden was not repulsive to him. It drew him to her. My friends, your and I's voice of need is not repulsive to our Father. It draws him to us. That's why we follow Jesus. Not because it's easy. Not because it'll give us our best life now. But because he's loving. He's tender. He's compassionate. And in his greatest greatness and splendor and victory as the centerpiece of human history... He meets you and I in our deepest need. He tenderly speaks our name and he invites us to follow him through the cross, through self-denial, through the death of ourselves into life everlasting with him. That's why we follow Jesus.
That's the appeal. Because he loves you and me. He's tender-hearted. He cares for us. And he says, come with me. Follow me into life. And my friends, all of this is possible because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.